Welcome to Basecamp Live. I'm your host, Davies Owens. You know, for the past four years, we have been encouraging parents and teachers and staff through the Basecamp Live podcast and this rapidly growing classical Christian school movement that is now literally spreading all around the world. This fall, we're refreshing the podcast, adding some new segments and content, and we would love your input. As always, it's wonderful to hear from you. So let me know where you're listening from and any thoughts or ideas, topics that you have for us to engage. It's always good to hear from you. Just drop us a quick email at info at basecamplive.com. So stay tuned for all these exciting updates coming soon. In this episode, I was back on the road at the summer ACCS conference with my friend and thought leader, Dr. Steve Turley, who's been on Basecamp Live before. And we explored how so much of what we're experiencing in our crazy modern culture is directly correlated to the influences of a K-12 education. If you want to understand a culture, reverse engineer back to the education that one had, and you'll find a lot of the answers. But the reverse effect is also true. Create the right education, and you can change the culture positively. Join me for this conversation with Dr. Steve Turley on this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live, here live at the ACCS conference in Dallas with my good friend Steve Turley. How are you, Steve? I'm doing great, Davies. Great to be back. It's so good to have you back. It's been a couple years of, Steve, you got to get back on the podcast. <laughs> I think th- folks before, uh, you, you talked about beauty that matters. You got a mm-hmm. book on that. If folks don't know you, Steve, I, I, I don't know how people don't know Steve Turley, but if they <laughs> somehow got by not knowing you, internationally recognized scholar, speaker, and author, been on the faculty of various schools in the classical Christian school world teaching theology, Greek rhetoric. You're, prof- you're a professor of fine arts at Eastern University, and we'll talk more about what you're doing now in a second, but author of 20 books. That's probably gone up. Since Just a little over 20. A yeah, little yeah. over 20, including yeah. the book we're going to talk a little bit about, Classical versus Modern Education, a vision from C.S. Lewis. Uh, your research and writings have appeared in journals like Christianity and Literature, First Things, Touchstone, Chesterton Review, prolific writer. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, you've had this incredible run with YouTube and this YouTube yeah. channel. Yeah, yeah, and social media and broadcasting, yeah. Yeah, kind of delving more into just, you know, your expertise in the rise of nationalism, populism, and traditionalism throughout the world. And so, you got a whole lot going on with your Turley Talks, and, and yeah. uh, I'm glad to have Turley here talking with me. So. <laughs> so, Oh, that was so clever, hey, I worked. I worked on that for hours. <laughs> I pulled it off. Oh, boy. Love it. Uh, with a rhetoric it's dangerous stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, no. you could get by me pretty easy. All don't right, worry. don't worry. All right. Well, Steve, I know some people are listening that you know maybe for the first time, if maybe because of who you are and your connection, your network, or maybe through Basecamp, just or needing to be reminded. You know, we talk. We're obviously very interested in education. That's kind of the backbone of Basecamp Live. Education for so many people was this. You know, it's the fun yellow bus ride in the morning, and school was the apple on the teacher's desk. So much has changed. But first, why is education, in your opinion, so formative in changing a culture? That's uh, a it's a great question. Well, I think it's you'll be astonished how many teachers don't actually know what the word education means. Hmm. Uh, I've done an informal poll on that over the years, and you know, a lot of them believe it's well, it's acquiring information. Hmm. You know, or it, it's it's uh, developing certain skills needed, you know, for 
for uh, a job, whatever it is. But they don't recognize that the Latin educare actually means to lead out. Hmm. So education involves being led somewhere. And so the fundamental question that we have to ask is to, to what are students being led? Hmm. And then that would be, classically speaking, uh, what the Greeks would call paideia. They, they would call um, the notion that education is just information acquisition would have been unintelligible to them. Education is all about initiating the students into a particular kind of culture, into a particular way of being human. And they recognize that the only way, you know, say, Athenian ideals could be you know, transferred to posterity was by intentionally initiating students into those ideals so they can take their right. place uh, among the citizens of Athens, for example, and, uh, and be able to perpetuate what they would consider sort of a cosmic harmony, you know, with gods and with, with fellow men and hence perpetuate vital life processes. So we've, I think in many respects over the last hundred years or so, and I know we'll get into it, we've really dropped the ball on that. Those who are conservative, those who love faith, family, and freedom and the like, we've really dropped the ball in that we've bought into the notion that education is simply information acquisition, and it's not initiation to a culture. And as a result, I think our kids are getting initiated into a culture that's very alien to the very faith, family, and freedom right. we love. <clears throat> because the notion that there is sort of value-free or neutral education, you know, I've heard parents say, well, I'll just, you know, whatever they teach them down at that school, we'll just kind of make up for it at the dinner table. Right. I mean, is, what's the fallacy of that line of thinking? Right, right. <laughs> well, because, yeah, because yeah. education is, it's not so much informative as it is formative, and there's no way around that. So if a child is learning seven, eight hours a day that God does not matter in any way, shape, or form, to literature or art or geometry or science and like, uh, there's no way you're going to make up for that at the dinner table. They, they, are, they will embody the notion that theology is irrelevant to all the, these subjects. Mm. And in so doing, they will spend 13 years privatizing their faith. And a privatized faith has no moral or what we call you know, truth-based component to it because the, the moral and the truth-based are public. They're not private. They apply to all, not to only some. They're objective, not subjective. And so when the faith becomes radically subjective, then it is easily, you know, uh, how do you want to put it, manipulated by the larger culture. And that's exactly what we're seeing right. with the mainline <clears throat> churches today. They're following the culture rather than co the culture following the church. What's, well, and what's interesting is that it, it almost seems like there's two kind of opposing understandings. There, I mean, there's the formation versus the information side of things. And you're saying basically there's no way out of the formation. You're going to get there's formed. There's no way out. And yet, when you know, in your book, talking about Lewis's understanding of the cultivation of virtue and the idea that you know, classical education versus is really mm -hmm. moral formation mm -hmm. and modern education is more scientifically right. mechanistic, which makes it sound like the modern mechanistic is actually kind of amoral. It's just like, yeah. we're just going to go learn science in the corner, but yeah. in, there's never a point where you've right. abandoned the moral. Right. Well, <laughs> right. The, the amoral is highly immoral <laughs> <Right>. in many <laughs> respects. No, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because when you contrast the way we did education for 2,500 years, all our founding fathers and the like, we're all immersed in this thing called classical education. And the fundamental assumption to it is this thing we call cosmic piety. You know, we've talked about mm. this before, I think, in another podcast. It's just the notion that the world's filled with divine meaning and purpose, and therefore every person born into the world 
is born into a divine obligation. We're, we're obliged to conform our lives into a harmonious relationship with the, the divine meaning and purpose around us, and hence experience our ultimate yeah. human flourishing. And the way you did that was cultivating wisdom and virtue. And so wisdom was knowing what that purpose is, and then virtue is aligning your loves uh, to desire uh, and thirst for that uh, the, that uh, divine meaning and purpose so that you can love what's truly lovely, desire what's truly desirable, and hence experience your ultimate human flourishing. In the modern world, we got rid of that. The modern world replaced cosmic piety with the scientific laboratory, basically. And in the 18th century, it became commonplace to say, you know, if you can't prove something empirically sci through the scientific method, then we just don't know it exists. You can believe in it, but you can't know it. You can't impose it on other people. And over the course of the 19th and 20th century then, it became commonplace to teach students that when all is said and done, reality is basically made up of biology, chemistry, and physics, and then you get to impart whatever meaning and whatever purpose you want to impart to it. It's all value neutral and you get to determine yeah. what those values are. Well, that's called value relativism. And there is, there is nothing neutral about that. It is assuming the world has no divine meaning and purpose. That's, the, the universe is basically dead. Yeah. And that we get to impart whatever meaning or purpose we want to uh, on an individual basis. And of course, the devil's bargain is you have no idea what that meaning and purpose is mm -hmm. going to be. It may be very noble, but it also may be very, very wicked. Uh, but there's no difference in the nihilistic world. In the nihilistic world, there's no difference between life and death because nothing has inherent meaning. Right. So it and tends to be a very, very destructive conception yeah. of life. Which seems like, again, and we're, we're going to get into it, I mean, it, it's gone from maybe a more neutral position of you know, a, a non-religious, um, uh, personalized view of how you want to shape the world beyond your mechanistic education to now being very much an right. intentional, right. we're going to form you and exactly. you, and we're going to cancel if you're not going to be exactly, formed. Yeah. But I want to back up. So in your book, referencing Lewis, I mean, you talk about his, and I don't know if, how much of this is Lewis in his own day kind of rediscovering for himself the, the really the paideia or the, mm -hmm. the power of education to to form what we truly love. But that idea of sort of forming the affections, did that, yeah. w was that reintroduced in, in Lewis's thinking for him and others? Yeah, it's a good question um, because we don't see it so much in Dorothy Sayers, per se. She's much more interested in the trivium and the, and the right. uh, well, more the trivium than the quadrivium. But uh, yeah, it seems that Lewis really had his finger on something and that was that education was just so... Uh, mind-oriented, and it cared nothing about the affections because it lost it lost touch with the classical nature of the soul. Yeah, the classical nature of the soul is made up of mind. It's made up of you know heart and appetite, or what Aristotle would say, logos, ethos, and pathos. I like better Plato. He'd say logos, themos, and eros, mm. and and so the loves of a of a human being were just as important as, say, the intellectual content that they were they were learning. And we get that from, from Genesis. So Genesis 1, God creates the world and says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he creates humanity and says, and it's very good. So there's a hierarchy to the goods. There's a, like I like yeah. to say, there's a difference between a baby and a ham sandwich. You know, <laughs> they're both good, but... They're falling. I have to rush to save the baby, not the ham sandwich. <laughs> if I rush to save the ham sandwich, my desires, my inclinations, mm. my loves 
have been dislodged from God's economy of goods, and that's exactly what we see in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. In Genesis 3, Eve looks at the fruit and says, you know, it was, it was kalos. It actually says it's beautiful. It was good uh, to, for food, and it was desirable. Arestos is the Greek. It was arresting for, for knowledge. And uh, so you see this, these terms of desire and, and good. And, and so we find that the affections can dislodge us away from God's economy of goods and latch on to false goods. <laughs> and that's the difference between the sirens and the muses. Sirens yeah. will try to use a false beauty to lure you to your death. Whereas the muses inspire true beauty that awaken yeah. life. So the affections are absolutely essential. Uh, J- uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great uh, Puritan <laughs> pastor, wrote that wonderful book, Religious Affections. The affections are essential to leading us and to drawing us. And what we need to do is cultivate right affections that are lined up with God's economy of goods. And that's how we experience which, <clears throat> our ultimate flourishing. Which is a... which so. We're going to take a break in just a moment, but just for somebody who's never set foot in a classical Christian classroom, what does that, how do you convey affections upon a student? What does that look like in a very practical kind of way? Yeah, and it, actually that's where the whole notion of beauty comes in. Be- beauty awakens our loves. You know, whatever we find beautiful, we are attracted to mm. by definition. And so classical educators spend a lot of time, as you mm. know, really thinking about how to employ beauty into their curriculum and into their classroom so as to draw the affections of the students. So, I mean, this could be, you know, pointing out um, all the ways, for example, literature, art, architecture, music, poetry, science, and so forth, reveal divine meaning and reality. They're they're basically instruments through which... So a, a great one is if you play Bach for a student and then you ask the student as they're listening, does this piece ever have to end? And they kind of think about it and they go, no, is there any time, does this piece have to end or can it theoretically keep going forever and ever and ever? And if you listen to Mach and you, with that question, you go, wow, I never thought it. It can go on forever and ever. Well, what do you know? You're encountering a sonic manifestation yeah. of eternity. Yeah. And whoa. you know. I love little... when you've said that. Like, okay, what music's going to make it to heaven? All right, that's a whole other debate and discussion for another day. But I do want to, I want to end on a note. We're going to hit a break and come back. But I think, you know, if we stop the podcast right now, I think somebody might, we might be at risk of somebody listening and saying, yeah, I knew this is what you guys were about. It's basically, you're going to take kids, protect them from the world, pump a lot of classical music into them, make them think about, you know, the eternal life to come. But I want to, I think we're making the, that's all true, but we also want to make the case that this is the best antidote for a student to move out into a world that is absolutely coming at them, you know, guns firing, you know, with with their woke threats and their, all of their CRT stuff and everything's coming at them. So why don't we take a break? So I want to come back and talk about like, this is a offensive strategy and I want to, can explore with you kind of where you see that working so we'll be right back with steve turley he's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist it's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation we call it a mccurdy moment Hey, Keith, one of the questions that I think we often ask as parents is, when do I get time to really go deep with my kids? And we live in this world today, even as folks are kind of coming out of COVID, um, it's this 
rare, rare moment that we can have to have conversation. And dinner is kind of about where it's at. I know most families, uh, historically, even in Christian homes, don't have dinner certainly every night together. But when you can have dinner together, it's that rare, rare air. Um, how do you maximize that experience? Yeah, I you know it's amazing because through COVID, we've for many families we've recovered dinner. So we're, we're getting a little more of that right now. And so I think figuring out how can we use that in a healthy way is, is a great thing to look at. You know, if we look at, at what we see mealtime for in scripture, it's really a celebration of relationship. Uh, and yet in most homes today, dinner is a time to fuss at our kids about their manners or about they didn't do their chores or about something we're unhappy with. You know, when I talk to kids in my office, uh, it's interesting because often what I get from them is there's a very rarely regular conversation in their family. And, you know, when I ask, I say, is there ever much communication conversation in your family? A lot of times the answer is really no. Uh, but then the follow-up is, but when there is, it's usually me getting fussed at. So there's really not this quality engagement. And so dinner gives us that opportunity for it, but we can misuse that. I'll give you an example. I had a, a, a parent that came in and I've had this several times and they said to me, oh my gosh, we started doing this great thing at dinner. We have our children share two great things about their day and two negative things about their day. Doesn't that sound great? And they were very proud of it. I said, no. And they said, why not? I said, because one of your requirements is that every day your child has to focus on two bad things. And that is completely inconsistent with what Philippians 4 talks about with us. You know, whatever is right, wise, pure, lovely, admirable, anything excellent, praiseworthy, think on these things. If anything, if we want to steer conversation at dinner, we should ask our children, especially young children, because they get into this, tell me something, tell me one great thing about your day. It actually teaches our children to seek good. And that's hard to do because we all have a negative confirmation bias. So if you're going to steer dinner time, steer it towards your, your children seeking the good. If you're not going to steer dinner time, and that's fine as well, make sure the conversation is not about something you're frustrated with your child about. Just general stuff, just life, because that's something we've lost, the ability to sit and enjoy the company of our family. And dinner is the place to really begin renewing that. That's well said, Keith. I, I remember years ago when I was doing youth ministry, many years ago, there was a uh, book called Would You Rather? I'm sure it's still in print, but it was basically just a series of questions. Would you rather have chocolate ice cream or vanilla? Would you rather... Uh, jump out of a plane or jump off a cliff or whatever. You know, it's just some of it's completely nonsensical, but it was provoking enough to ask something other than how was your day? And it often leads to some very interesting conversations. So there are yeah, resources with, like that. Well, there are. And another one I'll tell you is the, it's called the ungame. Uh, and it, some people may be familiar with this in child therapy. It's something that's used quite a bit. It's simple questions about all different aspects of life. And you ask one and they answer, they get to ask you one. You draw cards, so you never know what's going to happen. So there are all kinds of creative ways to engage conversation. But dinner time should be about engaging one another in relationship, not about correcting behavior or fussing about manners. Great advice. Thanks so much, Keith. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? We'll send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. Welcome back to Basecamp Live here live at the ACCS conference with Dr. Steve Turley. Steve, this is a really fascinating 
um, and conversation worthy of hours, not a few minutes as we have. But I, I, as we went into the break, I want to really ask you to kind of unpack the fact that this is the most, uh, I would put it in the terms of it's an offensive strategy for the next generation. Um, this yeah. is not just a polite, let's all go pick up violins and avoid the bad world outside. Um, how do you right. see this as a, an offensive strategy? Yeah, well, uh, there's a speaker here named Doug Wilson who, who uh, uh, has famously said, if you're gonna fight the culture wars, you need a culture. You can't, <laughs> you can't fight the culture wars without an alternative yeah. culture. And yeah, well, we're always against. I mean, that's the typical yeah. Christians that we're the anti yeah. this, anti yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, or right, or, or we're the the bad version of yeah, you know. That's true. So, yeah. I mean, I've actually been at a Christian bookstore that said in the music section, if your kids like Green Day, they'll like this, you know. And then they give you this you know, off-brand Christian yeah. alternative. Right. You know, that's just or or even just. I mean, I'm going to get in trouble, but even so much of our contemporary music just sounds like really bad air supply. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. Right. Just give me the paganism straight up, man. Right, right. You know. So no, yeah. absolutely. The the important thing to realize is we're not reinventing the wheel here. Mm-hmm. We're going back to a formative education that is 2,500 years old, that was central to the creation of Western civilization, and it is the primary means by which we preserve Western civilization. Western civilization is under radical attack right now, even within the church. It's pretty astonishing stuff. It's under a radical attack, and there's no better way to, um, to counter that attack than to go back to the very kind of education that is there precisely to shape the affections, to love the civilization that's under attack. And so, so it's you, very offensive in many ways. So, so just bring up, just kind of, again, a lot of ground to cover in a short period of time, but I mean, what it, what, how has the landscape changed? For many parents, again, living in their comfortable classical Christian bubbles, not that any parents are unaware of what's happening in the world right, around us, but I right. mean, just how how aggressive are things changing? <clears throat> well, yeah, somehow kindergarten suddenly became controversial. I mean, nobody ever thought that would mm. ever happen, but it is. Um, so we are introducing more and more CRT, it's you know, critical race theory, into uh, into kindergarten classrooms, and uh, children are being taught basically this that. America is a bad country, and it's mm-hmm. a bad country because there are two groups. One group always oppresses the other group. The group that always oppresses is always bad, regardless, of, even if there are some nice people mm. in there, right? So that's why you can knock down abolitionist statues, which they did over the summer. A lot of people said, I can't believe they did that. Well, it's not hard if you understand CRT, because it's not the individual that matters. It's the group. And then the group that's always oppressed uh, is always good, regardless if there's some individuals that are pretty shady within there. But they're always good and they're always saints. And so students are taught our country's bad. There's two groups, a bad group and a good group. And then they ask a very simple question. How do I know who belongs to which group? And the answer is by their race. I actually sat at dinner last night here at the conference with a lady who's been in the public school systems. And she said there's actually a, a, a metric or a test that everyone has to take to basically show uh, how um, how much of an oppressor you are. Right. And so, you know, right. and she was, I was only a two because I grew up in a foster home. So I was right. looking good, you know. It's like, wow. <laughs> Doing good. <laughs> Doing great. But, I mean. I'm an essential I, worker. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. I'm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, and so, that's and that's the style. It's, it's Marxism. It's Marxism refashioned around cultural categories rather than economic and class-based categories. But it is in Marxism. And these are radicals who have taken over 
education and every wing pretty much of our cultural institutions and they are now uh, shoving that down the throats of students and as a result they can no longer learn wisdom virtue they can no longer learn to love and revere their traditions and their inheritance and so they're taught to destroy and yeah. to maim and to and to resent and that creates a fundamentally different kind of human person than what classical education seeks to cultivate. So, so again, very practically, if I if my child is in a classical Christian school, at the obvious face value, they're not being asked to take you know victor oppressor uh, you know test and figure out this isn't this this whole uh, the the outward narrative is not being put in front of them. But but again, every kid for the most part, unless they're incredibly uh, sheltered in some way, are still. To, you know, on, on social media, that even there are best classical Christian kids. Right. So you're still the offenses, the, or the the attacks are still coming. Right. Again, what is happening in the formation of the minds and the heart of the classical Christian student that gives them some resilience to that kind of influence? So the classical Christian students going to cultivate a whole different way of understanding reality. To to be really blunt, yeah. I mean, they're going to be understanding reality as inherently divine. It's an it's an it's eternal. That's where being comes from, is the sense of, of, of God's presence in, in all things. And then they recognize that all the elements of culture are historically manifestations, material, tangible, substantial manifestations of that eternality, like we talked about Bach's music or Shakespeare's mm -hmm. literature or Michelangelo's art, you name it, right? Or the grand uh, Gothic architecture, you keep going and going. Science itself, you know, numbers, for example, mathematics, numbers are eternal. They don't come into being at yeah. any point. They are eternal and you're studying eternal reality. They recognize that culture is supposed to be a palpable, substantial manifestation of that eternally true, good, and beautiful in contrast to those who think culture is there to oppress and suppress. Yeah. Culture is there, a purely arbitrary meaning system superimposed upon biology, chemistry, and physics has no meaning or no purpose. And so why, are, why would I subject myself to these, these suppressive tendencies? Let's destroy culture and build one according to our own image. That, so the classical student is for lack of a better term, I know we're using it this way, they're kind of inoculated, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, With a good vaccine. <laughs> yeah, they got a good vaccine <laughs> in classical education to start seeing through that claim as itself just another right. cultural <laughs> claim, right? Because that's in the end the... the uh, the uh, the feet planted firmly in midair for cultural Marxism. All cultures are you know power s systems that seek to dominate. Hey, that means so is yours, mm. Mr. Marxist. Yours is a system, die and boy, don't we see that historically speaking, right? right. Yeah. So students, uh, classical students, with uh, the emphasis on logic and critical thinking, but especially the emphasis on beauty and aesthetics and being able to understand the nature of culture, that it's not perfect. But the, as it were, the betterment of culture happens only when we have an objective standard mm -hmm. by which we can we can cultivate culture, as it were. They are they are in a position to be able to resist this and not not yeah. fall victim to the siren call of this BLM and you know CRT and the like. Which which again, I think a lot of you know Christian educational endeavors are 
Christ-centered, which is wonderful, but are not necessarily training them in the in the in the uh, you know in the formation of their mind. As you mentioned, you know they they study logic in middle school and rhetoric in high school. So the ability to look and and hear an argument, even I guess the point is a lot of times even faithful Jesus followers are you know some of the most wokey people I know right yes, now are evangelical yes, Christians yes. that are just yes. no they love Jesus but they don't have any ability to discern and really no. sort sort it out. So our yeah. students again far from perfect, but are equipped at least right. with these tools that are exactly. unique. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And the key there, too, is this kind of, yeah, puts a nice kind of, we're going full circle. Um, our faith has been radically privatized over the last hundred years. And you see it in, say, urban landscapes. If you go to a European <laughs> urban landscape, where's the church? You know, yeah. It's right at the center. Or, or in New England Commonwealth, you know, we still have those particularly in, say, Pennsylvania and so forth. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful urban landscape of the, the congregational church right at the center of the heart of town with a beautiful green in front of it for community activity yeah. and the like, all done under, under the shadow of the cross the and the yeah. steeple. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You think about modern urban planning, where's the church? It's right next <laughs> so the to the shopping center. Exactly. It's right next to dry cleaners and right. pizzerias. Yeah. You know? and it looks like a theater. Yeah. It looks like a theater. And what we have to understand is that radically reshapes the faith because mm. the faith fundament historically was always a public faith mm. because the public is the realm of the objective, right? It, the obligatory, the, there's that cosmic piety. We're all obliged, you know. It's, uh, it applies to all, not only some. We've all got to pay our tax. You know, that mm. kind of, so we're very upset when we see some people don't have to, that kind of yeah. stuff. But the private sphere of life is the subjective, mm -hmm. it's the optional, mm -hmm. it applies to some, not all. And when you realign the Christian faith into the private sphere of life next to pizzerias and dry cleaners, then yeah. there is no way yeah. to maintain the moral fiber <clears throat> of our faith because morality is objective, it's not subjective. Right. It's public, it's not private, right? It's, yep. it's obligatory, it's not optional. It applies to all, doesn't apply to only some. And so unfortunately, the new woke Christians are precisely what you get when you privatize yeah. the faith. They love Jesus personally, but the only moral system they know how to think <clears throat> in terms of is our new public moral system of cultural Marxism. Right. <clears throat> And so I wonder, too, just kind of as we close this out, thinking about parents who have children in classical Christian schools. I mean, there's an I've seen so often families as a unit become kind of converted or awakened to a different way to perceive the world. Because yeah. that's, again, these books and the right. community itself. Right. So, <clears throat> I think that would be... Um, yeah, and so I guess just by in way by way of closing, Steve, just any words of encouragement, I guess, to families right now. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of burden that families are shouldering and, yeah. and trying to sort through culture and make sense of it all. And again, thank goodness for schools like these that that anchor Absolutely. families. So yeah, Absolutely. Well, I mean, the great news is we are going um, through what scholars call a process known as retraditionalization. We're going back. It's not just <laughs> us in the, here in the states. We're seeing it all over the world where more and more populations uh, have had it kind of with this brave new world, globalism or cultural Marxism, and they're going back to faith, family and freedom, nature, nation, culture, custom and tradition as a, as a way forward into the, into the indefinite future. 
because these are these are traditions and inheritances that we can trust. They've yeah. been around for thousands of years. They've defined our forefathers, and we want to go back. It gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah. So the good news is, classical education, I think, is part of that phenomenon, and uh, and that phenomenon has just begun. So the days of classical education, right. quite literally, are just beginning. <clears throat> and I, it's it's a, yeah, I'm glad we're ending on that because I know that's a lot of what you talk about on Turley Talks is just this rise of this new conservatism. It's very yeah. easy to become discouraged and yeah. think it's not happening. I mean, it, it certainly many examples through COVID. I know I don't think there's a classical Christian school in uh, in the U.S. probably around the world, with very rare exceptions. It's not experiencing unprecedented admissions right now, yeah. and so many folks are saying, "Okay, I've got the, enough is enough. Right. We're we're going back to what we knew worked right. worked before." Exactly. So I think we're just kind of it's kind of a forty years plus since Sayers wrote her article, and you know most classical Christian schools are kind of in year. 20 to 30, you know, of that first mm-hmm. gen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's really interesting to mm-hmm. look at just the growth and the opportunity. Oh, it's amazing. So, yeah. yeah. But and that's when, encouraging. Yeah. yeah. When you bring in even just the homeschooling element now, uh, you know, 30% of our students today yeah. are being uh, privately schooled in some way, shape, or form. The vast majority now being homeschooled. Yeah. Homeschooling has gone up 300% just in the last year. And uh, this, again, we're now approaching a possibility within just the next 10 years of us being the majority, yeah. of us being the 60%, and then the public wokey world right. being the 40%. Yeah. And then that's a game changer. Yeah. We finally have recovered our culture at that well, point. It's, it's encouraging. Well, I appreciate all you're doing, Steve. Just for folks that, again, are intrigued, say a little bit more about how folks can find out about Turley Talks. And oh, sure. I'm yeah. sure it's not hard to go out there, Google Turley Talks, you'll find it. There you yeah. go. Yeah. We got a website, turleytalks.com, or if you like social media, yeah. you know, YouTube, uh, Rumble, uh, BitChute, whatever, wow. Facebook, just put in Dr. Steve Turley, you'll you'll find it. So. Oh, good, Steve. Yeah, and you guys are pretty top ranked. I mean, you guys We're are, doing pretty well. We're pretty, doing great. It's, you, it's a blessing. It's you got some pretty fun way. t-shirts, too, if you got some Turley <laughs> Really swag. It's all out there. So anyhow, Steve, thanks so much for again for being on Base Camp Live. It's always good to have you here. Thanks so much, Davies. Hey, Base Camp Live listeners, thank you again for listening to this episode and for your faithful support and encouragement for going on four years of podcasting. It was so good to meet many of you in person this summer at the ACCS and SCL conferences, and I always appreciate getting your emails. Reach out to me. Let me know where you're listening from, what's on your mind. You can get to me at info at basecamplive.com. This fall is going to be an exciting time for Basecamp Live with some new formats and updates coming to the show. We are also grateful for the number of individuals and organizations who partner with us. So a quick shout out to these groups who I know personally, their leaders and the quality of the resources that they provide both to individuals and to schools. First of all, the focus group. If you're running a capital campaign or working on a major donor development project, they are accomplished, skilled, and ready to serve you. Secondly, Classical Academic Press, Chris Perrin and his team continue to build a wealth of curriculum and training materials for your classical Christian education, whether you're teaching at home or at school. Thirdly, Scola Inbound Marketing. Their proven model is helping schools attract and keep new families, a value to any school. And then Fourthly, the CLT or Classic Learning Test. Jeremy Tate and his team provide students with an alternative standardized test that is a much better way for students to demonstrate their knowledge and abilities. As we know, the SAT and ACT are being set aside by so many colleges and universities. So thank you so much for these 
resources and, and options that are given to us by these great sponsors. Finally, again, let us know where you're listening from, info at basecamplive.com. We'll connect with you again on our next episode. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>